From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, or highlights for Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. Thanks for joining us, and let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. Our best defense against the spread of coronavirus is hand-washing, but frequent hand-washing can take its toll by depleting the skin of its natural moisture and oils. What should you do if your skin becomes dry or sensitive? Joining us to discuss is Mayo Clinic Dermatologist, Dr. Dawn Davis. Dr. Davis, welcome to the program. Hi, Dr. Kakar. It's great to be here. Nice to see you. It's good. It's nice to see you. So let's talk about hand-washing. Obviously, we hear a lot about it. How how should we do this properly? Yes. So the first thing I want to reassure people is that it is not surprising and not uncommon that the skin could become dry and more irritated with increased hand washing. A lot of people have been asking dermatologists if that means something is wrong, bad, or different with their skin, and the answer is no. The skin makes its own natural oils and proteins and has its own moisturization process that keeps the skin moist on a regular day-to-day basis. But when hand washing increases, due to things such as COVID-19, it's understandable and expected that the skin could become dry and irritated. So I just want to reassure the public it doesn't necessarily mean anything is wrong or bad. So in terms of when you are washing your hands, should you use soap? Should you use bar of soap? Or if you pump the soap out, is there any difference there? Absolutely. So we should definitely still be washing our hands and we should most definitely use soap. If you only use water, you only get off a certain amount of germs that stay on the skin or that shed with the dead skin that is shedding with your vigorous rubbing of the washing. So most definitely, please do not refrain from washing or refrain from using soap during this time. Soap is very imperative. Now, it's most ideal to use a soap that is hypoallergenic, free of irritants and perfumes, and other sorts of fun accessories like glitter and sparkles. Um, And oftentimes the easiest way to get hypoallergenic soap is in bar form because it tends to have, in general, less chemicals and more moisture content. However, there are some liquids and foams over the counter that are readily used as soaps that also are more hypoallergenic. So I would encourage you to simply look for uh, an allergen-free moisturizing soap and use what is readily available for you. So you've taken some of the fun away there. Children don't like to wash their hands, so we can't use glitter soap. So is there a little... I know you might like glitter soap too. (laughs) (laughs) But but is there a simple uh, trick that you can do when you're washing your hands in terms of how long you should be washing them for? Absolutely. So it's hard to think of 20 seconds. We like to wash our hands in warm water. Doesn't have to be scalding hot, but preferably comfortably warm. 
which remember for young children is cooler than it is for adults because children cannot tolerate as warm a temperatures mm -hmm. as adults can. And so warm water relative to the person, whether that be in a child or an adult, and we like to wash for 20 seconds, which for adults can seem like a very long time and for children seems like an eternity. So the best thing to do when washing your hands is to sing a song out loud or in your head to ensure that you've washed enough for 20 seconds. For children, I like to recommend having fun singing the ABCs or perhaps the happy birthday song. For adults, um, I, I like to tease that you can sing your favorite 1980s love ballad, which we all know those big hair band songs lasted much longer than 20 seconds. And if you want to feel patriotic during our public health initiative of COVID, it's always appropriate to sing the national anthem while you wash. So what's your song then, Dr. Davis? So I like big hair bands. I, I can't uh, <laughs> d deny. I've been doing some John Bon Jovi and some Journey in my head. And sometimes out loud if no one else is around. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we've talked about using soap, but what, but what about hand sanitizers or even those uh, disinfectant wipes? Do they substitute for soap and water? Uh, hand sanitizer and wipes are de definitely better than not doing anything at all. Um, hand sanitizers are thought to be um, almost as effective as soap and water. So soap and water is definitely preferred, mm -hmm. and it is especially preferred after particular activities, for example, using the restroom, and it's also preferred before eating and after eating. So you, you mentioned uh, about uh, regularly washing your hands, and it can take a toll on the skin. Uh, you know, you remove the natural moisturizer. And so what should one do, if this, especially if the hands become dry? Yes. So let's talk about that for a moment. When we wash our hands, make sure that you're scrubbing between the digits, between your fingers, and also getting all the way down to the wrists. Don't forget that the wrists are often involved in all the same things that the hands are. And I know as an orthopedic hand surgeon with an expertise in the wrist, you're probably very um, <laughs> engaged in that passion as well, Dr. Katkar. So don't forget the wrists and don't forget in between the digits. So when we rinse, we want to make sure that we're rinsing off not just the, the basic general parts of our hands that we think of, but that we're also paying attention to rinsing between the fingers and also on the wrist, particularly the backs of the wrist. Mm. A lot of times people forget about that. And then what happens is soap residue stays between the digits or lies on the backs of the wrists. And then people over time will get an irritant dermatitis from the soap residue that's there. And for little kids, especially, it kind of can start to feel sticky. And people might think that the skin is dirty when it's not really dirty, it's simply soap residue. And then when we dry our hands, let's make sure that we're gentle to our skin. We can use a paper towel if we'd like, but that can be abrasive. So since we're doing a lot of frequent hand washing, it's important to pat dry instead of scrub dry. And I would suggest using a linen, such as a cotton towel, over a paper towel. But using a paper towel or a cotton linen is much more preferable to letting the hands air dry, as air drying only lets the skin dry out more due to diffusion and evaporation mm. of moisture off the skin. And then if you shake your hands dry, first of all, you might um, make other people wet around you or contaminate surfaces. And then if you happen to have any sort of germs left on your skin accidentally, the vigorous shaking can cause the germs to distribute. So we wanna make sure that we rinse well and are attentive to rinsing. And then we wanna make sure that we're gentle with our drying, patting dry. When we use our cotton linens, we wanna make sure that because we're washing all the time, that we don't keep our cotton linens around um, much that we change them often 
mostly daily, especially in high frequency use places like the kitchen and the bathrooms, and then perhaps every other day in areas of your home uh, where you might not use it that often. So we need to change our linens much more than we think we do. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned about air drying because it's one of those contradictions in terms when you wash your hands, you don't want to touch anything in case you pick something up. And so you try and air dry it. But as you've told us and educated us, that is not as effective as actually patting them down and drying them. But afterwards, your hands become sore. Uh, so, so what should we be doing uh, in terms of moisturizing our hands, especially with people, for example, who have eczema uh, and other skin conditions where their hands are, are drier than normal? Yes, absolutely. So now is a great time to get into the habit of moisturizing the skin, including your hands. Um, always remember that moisturization is good for the skin. Your skin is sort of like a kitchen sponge. And over time, with repetitive washing and using, it with use, it will simply dry out and look like a dry kitchen sponge. And so when you wash your hands and pat dry, you do allow some moisture back into the skin. And then we like to trap that moisture by putting on a moisturizer, which allows it to be kind of like a happy moist kitchen sponge. You can do that with lotion, with creams, or with ointments, and they are slightly different from one another. Lotions tend to be the weakest of the three, if you will, with regards to moisturization because it has more water content. Um, and so it goes into the skin quite well. It tends to be thinner, but it will evaporate faster. Creams are like lotion, but have less water content. So they tend to be thicker and they tend to take a longer time to absorb into the skin, but then they tend to stay longer and evaporate more slowly over time. Ointments purely sit on top of the skin. So you can think of them like a greenhouse roof or like a lid. And what they do is they, simply, they essentially just prevent or slow the evaporation that naturally happens off of the skin. So you're just giving the skin time to catch up with its own self-humidification. But because you're washing often, that's going to take a lot of time for the skin to catch up with itself. So based on those principles, what I like to suggest is once your hands are clean, apply an allergen-free or hypoallergenic lotion or cream to the skin, rub it in nice and gently, making sure to get between the digits and include the wrists. If you don't feel that your hands are moist enough, simply wait 30 seconds to a minute, another chance to sing a 1980s love ballad to yourself, <laughs> and then simply reapply again. Um, we don't think about reapplying lotion twice because we usually don't do a lot of other grooming things twice, like brushing our teeth, for example, or trimming our nails. But with regards to moisturization, you definitely get benefit from a second application. So simply apply again and repeat. If you'd like to go a step further because you think your skin needs more help, you could apply a cream or a lotion first, and then on your second application, use an ointment on top to seal it in like a roof. And, and that allows sort of a greenhouse effect, if you will. We'll be back with more, so stay with us. Now, we've been talking about hands, but now, obviously, people are wearing more and more masks, um, yes. and it can rub against the bridge of their nose or their ears. Uh, are you seeing this as a, as a phenomenon and patients complaining of this? Yes, absolutely. People are using the masks. Uh, they're getting friction and irritation across their nasal bridge. They're getting friction behind their ears, perhaps under their chin. And people, that happens, one, because of natural wear, but also because they're wearing the masks very tightly, which is well-intentioned, but can strangulate the skin. So not just friction and dermatitis, but also bruising. 
So the first step for mask use and sensitive skin, you know, you can wash your face, you can apply moisturizer that's made for faces that's hypoallergenic as if you were a woman putting on her makeup. Um, moisturization, moisturizers do come for the face for gentlemen too and in unscented forms. <laughs> um, and then what I'd recommend is that you take some zinc oxide. Zinc oxide is the white hypoallergenic chemical that's an unscented diaper paste like A&D ointment and things like that. And it's readily available over the counter and it's very inexpensive. And it has very nice um, anti-inflammatory properties. And what you can simply do is pretend that you're a, a 1970s lifeguard and put a thin layer of the unscented zinc oxide across your nasal bridge, behind your ears, or under your chin in places where the mask will rub, and then apply your mask. And that serves as a nice barrier to the friction without impacting um, or you know, decreasing the effectiveness of the mask. And then when you take the mask off, once you get home, um, you can wash and then moisturize again. So that would be the first step for the hands and the first step for the face. Yeah, no, that's, that's wonderful information. But a lot of these masks are surgical masks in the hospital, but now the public are making their own masks. Yeah. Um, do you, are there certain materials that you think are kinder to the skin yeah. uh, compared to others that are more abrasive? Yes, Absolutely. So according to the CDC, they prefer a tight weave cotton mask, although um, any sort of mask is better than no mask at all. So if you don't have an extra bed sheet or pillowcase that you can use, uh, consider using a bandana. If you don't have a bandana, then perhaps a cotton towel like a hand towel um, or even a scarf, although those have uh, less tight weaves. Personally, what I suggest to my patients is if you have an extra pillowcase laying around, you will also often note that at the end of the pillowcase, the cotton material is folded over and sewn shut such that it's a double layer of cloth. And if you can trim off the edge of the pillowcase that has that border and sew it side to side, you've given yourself a four layered tight weave cotton mask that's soft because we use it as a bed sheet. And then you can simply sew or clip hair bands, if you'd like, or cotton strings from the remaining part of the pillowcase to this rectangular square that you've made out of the, the pillowcase trim. And that serves as a very nice, soft, cotton tight weave mask. Well, thank you for giving me the permission for now allowing my children to take scissors and cut the pillowcases. Uh, I can just uh, tell them that it's of the advice of Dr. Davis. That's right. So if, uh, if your wife gets disappointed, I guess it's just a, a nice excuse to eventually get some new linens. <laughs> We've been talking about the importance of moisturizing the hands, uh, and usually that's enough. But some patients, they will have flares of their dermatitis, and they need to do something else. What, what is your advice, especially for the hands? Absolutely, Dr. Katkar. So if you've tried the layered moisturization and ointment with the cotton sock um, example, and that isn't enough help, what I'd recommend is kicking it up a notch to something that in dermatology we call a wet dressing. Um, with my patients, I nickname it the medical burrito or the skin burrito. And it sounds quite complicated, but actually it's quite straightforward and you can do it very easily with things that you have at home. So the first thing that you'll do is you'll wash your hands after you've, um, when you're ready for bed or in the morning when you rise and you'll pat dry gently as we've discussed before. Then what I want you to do is put on two thick layers back to back of your thickest, um, uh, most effective hypoallergenic lotion or cream that you have all the way down to the wrists. 
and I want it to be so thick that you can see like a, some white residue as if it were cake icing on a cupcake or a brownie or something like that. It probably won't be terribly thick, but I want you to definitely see residue of the cream sitting on top of your skin. Then once you've done that, I want you to take an eight ounce glass of warm water, not hot, but warm, and put into it a, a teaspoon of white vinegar from your kitchen and mm. stir it into that cup. So you can put it in a bowl or a cup, stir it into the bowl or the cup, the white vinegar, and then take two washcloths that are clean, dip them into the bowl or the cup of the vinegar water, pull them out, twist them so that they're, wring them out so that they're wet, but not dripping all over everywhere, and simply roll that vinegar, wet, warm washcloth over your hands, and then place your tube sock on top. And what the warm water and vinegar soap does is it adds more moisture to that greenhouse effect the vinegar helps adjust the pH, which keeps the skin clean. The heat or the warmth allows the pores to open up and allows the extra lotion that you've applied to soak deeper into the skin more effectively. And then you simply allow that wet dressing, if you will, or my nickname, the hand burrito, uh, to be placed on overnight if you're sleeping or for an hour uh, during the daytime when you're awake. And you can do this two to three times a day. You can do it morning, after a lunch meal, for example, or in the afternoon, and then of course before bed. And a lot of people find that if simple sock coverage does not help, that kicking it up a notch with moisturization and a vinegar soak um, helps definitively. Well, I wanna okay. make sure that we tell the public to remember ointments do not work under wet dressings. They don't absorb into the skin. So if you try this with petroleum jelly or um, a moisturizer that is mostly ointment based, you'll just become frustrated. So make sure that it's a cream or a lotion. And then lastly, I'd like to remind people you can do something similar if you're having mask irritation. So after you've washed and pat dried, um, what you can do is simply apply the lotion twice to your face or the cream, leaving a nice thick layer, and then do the same vinegar soak with the washcloth and then simply lay it across your face in the areas that are irritated for about 15 minutes and repeat that two to three times a day. And you'll find that that humidification method is very helpful to the face. Well, some wonderful pearls there, Dr. Davis. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've yeah. had the honor and privilege to be talking to Dr. Dawn Davis, Mayo Clinic Dermatologist. Thank you so much, Dr. Davis. My pleasure, Dr. Kakar, and please remember that if patients have trouble beyond these uh, at-home remedies, we're happy to take care of them in dermatology or primary care. Please contact your local provider. We're here to help. Mayo Clinic Radio will return right after this. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Did you know your kid could have an eating disorder if he or she is extremely picky? Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, a Mayo Clinic child psychologist who specializes in eating disorders, says it's called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. It's basically extreme picky eating. The food repertoire of those who have it is so limited that they can't maintain their body weight and they have health issues. She says it can be a fine line, though, between normal childhood behavior and extreme pickiness. 
She says your kid's weight goes on a curve. If they fall off their curve, that's when you start to worry. And it doesn't matter, by the way, if their curve is at the fifth percentile, the fiftieth percentile, or the eighty-fifth percentile. As long as your kid continues to track where he or she has always tracked, that's healthy. But it can be a problem if your kid loses weight and falls off his or her curve. In that case, Dr. Lebo says you don't want to make meal time World War III. She says, if suddenly you're setting up a power struggle and demanding that they have to eat, and you keep telling them they have to eat, they have to eat, you're kind of dooming yourself. It can be even trickier for picky teens, so she suggests getting professional help. In the meantime, she says parents should do all they can to get their kid to eat more of anything. Dr. Lebo says parents should be challenging picky eaters to eat bigger portions of the foods that are on their list of what they want to eat. She says if your kid falls off the curve, nutrition is not as important at that point. Their body is not using nutrition the same way, so it's really about getting their weight back up before you start trying to get them to eat kale or something like that. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. My co-host, family physician, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Tracy McRae is away. Dr. Cozine, nice to have you with us. Thanks for having me with you. So we're going to talk about ovarian cancer. And we have previously talked about it. And we've talked about what a uh, difficult disease it is to treat. And the fact that it is fortunately relatively uncommon. Only about 22,000 women are diagnosed with ovarian cancer every year. But the prognosis is suboptimal, not as good as we'd like it to be. And in fact, less than 50% of women live for five years after they're diagnosed. How do doctors decide the best treatment? And what are some of the factors that influence the outcome in patients with ovarian cancer? Joining us in studio today is Mayo Clinic gynecologic oncologist surgeon, Dr. Amanika Kumar. Welcome, Dr. Kumar. Thank you so much for having me. Good to have you back. So uh, ovarian cancer, we know that uh, many women present uh, with late stage disease. They're, it wasn't diagnosed early on when it might have been more curable. And why is that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the biggest challenges with ovarian cancer. And part of it is because it's rare. There's not a good screening test. So we've done lots of studies looking for screening tests similar to like what we do for mammography and breast cancer or colonoscopy for colon cancer, pap smears for cervical cancer. But for ovarian cancer, there's not a good effective screening test. And the second issue is there's not a lot of symptoms. So the symptoms that people have are really vague. And I think this presents a really big diagnostic challenge for people like our primary care doctors, Mm -hmm. um, where patients come in and they have vague complaints like abdominal pain, bloating, Sometimes they get full kind of early. And who hasn't had that symptom over the last month? And so trying to distinguish, you know, I kind of in some ways have the easy part where they already come to me with a diagnosis. But if you're a family care doc or a primary care doc and you're seeing this patient, you have to figure out, is this the problematic kind of abdominal pain or is this just normal daily abdominal pain? Right. And when they come to see me, they're usually pretty undifferentiated and but worried about ovarian cancer because they do hear about this sort of statistic that, you know, fewer than 50 percent of women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer live for five years after the diagnosis. Tell us a little bit about those statistics. Why is it so grim. Yeah. So at the end of the day, even though we do have some treatments that are effective and we can usually, but not always, get patients into remission, because of the late stage of diagnosis, we have disease that's usually spread throughout the abdomen, sometimes outside of the abdomen into the chest cavity or other parts of the body. And so treatment is challenging and cancer cells can evade the 
the traditional treatments of surgery and chemotherapy, and the disease often recurs. So while I can get someone can get into remission with our traditional therapies, their risk of it coming back and then not being curable is quite high. Dr. Corzine, has any a woman, a female, ever come into your office and and you said to yourself, I bet she's got ovarian cancer? And if so, what was it about the, the history or maybe your examination that made you suspect that? I've had it on my differential before, and actually I have yet to diagnose ovarian cancer. Um, I've That's thought about recurrence. Exactly. Yeah. Although the, the woman who is postmenopausal, who is perhaps, you know, late 50s, early 60s, who has new bloating or new early satiety that's being full shortly after eating and really hadn't had this symptom before. So that kind of raises my feelers a little bit. And the main thing that I want to do is not ignore those types of symptoms and say, oh, we should look into this. And so I'll usually order, for example, pelvic ultrasound. Yeah. And that's really important. And like you said, I think it's becoming more common in the public discourse Mm -hmm. to know about these symptoms. But I, I think there's a lot of people who didn't even know there were symptoms of ovarian cancer. A lot of patients come to me and say, well, if I have so much cancer, why don't I have pain? Or why don't I have more symptoms? And I think patients then, the lack of symptoms, the lack of sort of screening tests that have shown anything, then also lead to the sense of shock when they say, well, I was just healthy and doing my normal life, and turns out I have an advanced cancer. But there's plenty of room for the ovarian cancer to grow in the abdomen before it actually pushes on anything enough that it causes symptoms, right? Exactly right. So yeah. when you talk about treatment, um, you they come to you with a diagnosis. How do you outline the options and how do you and the patient decide what's best for them? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know... If we're talking about just advanced ovarian cancer, which is the majority of patients, so patients who are stage 3C or 4, which means that the disease has left the pelvis and has spread throughout the abdomen and sometimes into the chest cavity, Mm. I tell patients that, for the most part, treatment is a combination of surgery and chemotherapy. And there are some nuances on how we decide, do we do surgery first? We call that primary cytoreductive surgery, meaning surgery that goes in and tries to take out as much of the tumor as possible. And then we follow that with chemotherapy. So that's option one. A second option is to start with chemotherapy, let the tumor shrink, do surgery, and then do some more chemotherapy after. Of course, there's always the option where there might be a patient who says, I, I don't want to treat this. Mm-hmm. You know, I have an advanced cancer. I've lived my life. And, and it's a pretty rare case, but it's important that patients know, you know, when you get a diagnosis like this and you feel really robbed of your control, that really you are still the person who gets to make decisions about your health and your body. And there are some patients who will choose not to do any treatment. So what are some of the factors that are within a patient's control, for example, what they eat or how active they are that might actually influence the treatment or how they respond to treatments? Yeah, and and this is the area we look at a lot. So the, the thing is, what I always tell patients is for everything we do, there's risks and benefits, especially for surgery. You know, there are a lot of risks with surgery, but there's a lot of benefit. We think that if we can get someone to the operating room and take out as much disease as possible, upfront as a first step that we can lead to the longest benefit from a survival standpoint, so the longest survival. But there's a cost to that surgery. This is highly complicated surgery. It includes operating in all four quadrants of the abdomen, meaning I'm going to, it's not just doing a hysterectomy, but it's often doing complicated surgery up around the liver, around the spleen, in the upper part of the abdomen. It usually requires a bowel resection. Sometimes these surgeries can last six to eight hours with a high rate of blood loss. And so that being said, 
it's also very effective surgery. And so there's two things that I look at. Number one, I want to make sure I can do a meaningful surgery. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to go into the operating room and then leave the operating room having put someone through a lot of risk and a lot of surgery without being able to take out the majority of disease. Mm -hmm. So the first is I want to make sure, is her disease resectable? Can I take out the most amount of disease that I can? The second question is, is she fit enough for surgery? Mm -hmm. Because there are a high risk of complications, and so we want to avoid complications. And we also want to make sure that if you were to have a complication, you can recover from Mm -hmm. that complication. So we look at lots of factors. It's not a perfect science, but we look at things like age, you know, how old is the person? Um, we look at the albumin, and that is a nutritional marker, mm-hmm. and it can be very affected by cancer and the fluid that develops in the abdomen. We look at their other comorbidities, mm-hmm. so other medical history that they have, like heart disease or clots in their leg and lungs and how that influences their overall being. We look at their weight, and then we also look at their functional status. Mm-hmm. You know, how fit is the patient? Does she do all of her activities? Does she walk around? Or has the disease caused a lot of debilitation? Is this someone who really can't even get out of bed and mm-hmm. can't really function? If they can't function, it's going to be really hard to get through a big surgery. A lot of factors to consider. Now, I know you have a particular interest in sarcopenia and the effect it has on a patient's prognosis. Tell us what sarcopenia is. Yeah, so this is a new area. So sarcopenia is a loss of skeletal muscle mass along with a loss of physical function. And so it represents something that is age-related and it's cancer-related, but it's not a perfect correlation. And we're interested in seeing how do patients' muscle mass uh, affect their overall outcomes, and then how can we influence that muscle mass and potentially change outcomes. All right, ovarian cancer, it's often diagnosed late. Less than 50% of women live for five years after a diagnosis. A thorough assessment of the patient is absolutely necessary to to determine the appropriate treatment plan and maintaining good muscle strength, avoiding sarcopenia, and good nutrition can improve the prognosis in women with late-stage disease, which unfortunately most of them are. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic gynecologic surgeon, Dr. Monica Kumar. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss asthma in adults. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Asthma. It can happen at any time during your life. Now, for some people, they get it as a child and they have it forever. For others who have had it as a child, it may get better during puberty, but then it can come back later in life. And yet for some, asthma may not develop until they're adults. How does that happen? Joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic allergy and asthma expert, Dr. James Lee. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Lee. Great to be here. Dr. Lee, good to see you. Asthma can strike at any age. Tell us about that. Well, Tom, you got it right. So asthma can't start in childhood. It can come and go. So the adults that we see with asthma sometimes have had asthma since childhood, but others uh, can develop asthma in adulthood. So even adults who have never had a breathing problem, never had asthma before, as an adult can show up with asthma. Well, that would be correct. And uh, we think the asthma develops as a combination between with genetics, environment, and infection. Um, We do see a lot of children with asthma, but adults with asthma can have asthma start in midlife or even later in life. 
So tell us, when we use the term asthma, what actually do we mean? What really happens inside the lung? Well, honestly, there are probably different forms of asthma, but the word is used to describe a lung condition that involves the airways or the bronchial tubes. And the characteristic of asthma, Tom, is that the bronchial tubes are extra sensitive. Uh, They can become inflamed and narrowed, and that can cause shortness of breath, wheezing, and other asthma symptoms. Shortness of breath, wheezing. What what else might a patient Well, sometimes cough, uh, sensation of chest tightness. That would be typical. And also there's this, uh, isn't there an overproduction or secretion of, of mucus, thick mucus, that can also contribute to the difficulty breathing? That can be a big factor for, for many patients. So a uh, cough, whether it, it's a non-productive or a productive cough, can be a part of asthma as well. And now is this the body overreacting for some reason? Well, that can be part of it. I think we sort of think of the condition as an inflammatory condition involving the airway, so it's inflammation. Uh, The reactions can occur because there are asthma triggers that can cause the bronchospasm or the narrowing of the bronchial tubes. Uh, Often we think about uh, allergy-causing substances Mm -hmm. like cats or dogs or mold, other triggers could be just environmental smoke. A smoky room or a restaurant can do it, too. So a lot of things that we could potentially have some control over. So thinking about smoking or not being in smoke or pets. Tell us about some of the ways to treat asthma. Well, we always try to identify the specific triggers for an individual patient with an mm-hmm. asthma, Elizabeth. And once those triggers are identified for a particular patient, then we can logically and mm-hmm. reasonably give them advice about what to avoid. The point being, if we, we don't ask people to avoid substances that are not triggered for them personally. Sure. I, I wanted to ask you one other thing about the uh, symptoms uh, and the disease itself. Uh, because wheezing, uh, coughing, shortness of breath is one thing. But an asthma attack, even maybe your first one, can be life-threatening, can it? it asthma attacks can be life-threatening. Sometimes it's the first one, but sometimes. But often it's not the first one. It's someone who has, ha- has known asthma, perhaps, and has had asthma attacks in the past, and then they experience the one big one. You mm-hmm. forgot their inhaler, or, or how does it happen? Well, I mean, uh, are some, these well, inhalers really effective? <laughs> the inhalers can be helpful. For, mm-hmm. for people who we see with asthma, we always review you know, what, how to recognize an impending asthma attack mm-hmm. and how to deal with it. So. Ideally, patients are diagnosed or they have a plan. We call it an asthma action plan so they know what to do. For other people, though, maybe they don't have a plan, maybe they don't have medications, or maybe it's just a major asthma attack that really requires hospital treatment. We try to make it really, really simple for patients thinking about that asthma action plan. So talk about the green zone when they're mm-hmm. well controlled, mm-hmm. the yellow zone when they're maybe starting to get in a little bit of trouble. Maybe they went over to a friend's house who has a cat. Mm-hmm. What would you do in that situation? Or the red zone, which are those really scary moments where you're needing more emergency type medications. The asthma action, action plan really should be individualized to the patient. Mm-hmm. So some action plans are pretty simple. It's mm-hmm. who to call, when to call 911, possibly when to use your rescue inhaler or when to use some oral prednisone. Even when they come to you as an adult, is this a fairly easy diagnosis to make? Well, sometimes it's pretty easy and straightforward. There's a sort of a prototypic type of asthma presentation, someone who has shortness of breath, wheezing, maybe triggered by cold or exercise. If they have an inhaler and they use it from time to time and it seems to help, maybe they have some seasonal allergies too or asthma in the family, then many physicians can make that diagnosis. 
Uh, usually it's confirmed with laboratory testing like breathing tests. There are other situations in adults, especially mm-hmm. where there's chest pain, some trouble breathing, uh, but it's not so clear. So we think, well, could it be another you know, lung condition? Do they smoke? Could they have a heart condition? So sometimes it's not that simple, Tom. So when we talk about uh, treatment for asthma patients, uh, we all know about inhalers because we've seen people use them. But you also have medications that you can use. And how do you decide who needs what? Right. So there's actually a growing repertoire of asthma treatments for patients. And we still really use a lot of the asthma inhalers. And I think your listeners will want to know that there are inhalers that I guess we call asthma controllers that we Mm -hmm. instruct patients to use every single day to quiet down that inflammation in the bronchial tubes. And then there's the albuterol inhaler that's sometimes called a rescue inhaler that's used as needed or for asthma attacks. There are also pills for asthma. Um, there are injections for a- different kinds of injections for asthma. There's steroid medicines mm-hmm. for asthma. Most physicians, especially specialists, uh, have those treatments available. And you know, one principle that we try to apply, Tom, is we want to get the right medicine for the treatment for the patient. But generally, that might mean the least amount of medicine for asthma that leads to excellent control of their symptoms. Right. Do you see patients uh, with yeah, asthma and, and follow Frequently. up? Yeah. And I say one of the most important things that I try to convey to people that are on slightly more complicated regimens than just the inhaler as needed is that the medicine that they are using to control their asthma may not make them feel better that day. And so it's really important that we're using it to control the symptoms overall so they have fewer of these big exacerbations or asthma attacks. That's an excellent point because a a lot of our management time and effort with patients is is trying to prevent problems. Mm -hmm. And preventive management doesn't always feel good at the time because you're trying to prevent symptoms, prevent Mm -hmm. attacks. And these medicines can often be very expensive for patients. And so it Sometimes I find that patients are trying to save them. And so what I tell them is, look, this is going to be a lot cheaper than the hospital cost if you are uncontrolled and have to come in and be seen multiple times or even in an emergency setting. Is asthma seasonal at all? You you mentioned cold as a potential trigger. Do you see more cases of asthma in Minnesota in the winter? So asthma often is seasonal, and and it can be seasonal for different reasons, right? So one type of seasonal asthma is is if someone has allergies and the spring pollen Mm -hmm. or the fall ragweed pollen kicks in, then they may have more asthma during that time of year. There's the cold air in you know the in Minnesota where mm-hmm. if someone's out there shoveling snow, their asthma may well be triggered during that activity because of the cold and the exercise. And then there's cold season, meaning catching cold season. <laughs> so catching a cold is a major trigger for asthma. All right, Dr. James Lee, an asthma expert at the Mayo Clinic. Obviously, asthma, I guess, can strike at any right. age. Even adults who have never had asthma before can get it later in life. Asthma can be caused or triggered by multiple factors, and there are multiple ways to treat it. As we've just heard, there are inhalers, medications, which you can give either by mouth or intravenously. And obviously, if you do have asthma, it's important to stay in touch with your doctor and follow up. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic asthma and allergy expert, Dr. James Lee. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.